Hey, uh, turn with me, if you have your Bibles with you, or a, a phone, an iPad, whatever means you have, turn with me to Exodus. We're actually going to pick back up in Exodus chapter 5. We're going to look at the last two verses, because they're the beginning of a conversation that Moses is having with God. And so this initiates the conversation, and then we're going to see God's response in chapter 6, okay? Um, how many of you guys have seen any of the photos of Danny uh, uh, Nichols on the beach this week? Right. I'm not sure if uh, that makes me happy or it gets me scared, but uh, uh, there is something, to be honest with you, that when I see those pictures and I see the sun shining on him, um, it just moves me. You know, there's something in the image, you know, uh, uh, God looking out for him, looking out for his family. God continues uh, to continues to care for him and his family and has used you guys to do a large part of that and is using uh, the Ashlock family as well to do that. Uh, and it's just a testimony to God's faithfulness to care for his sons and his daughters. And that faithfulness is also extended into your family as well. And I just want you to be encouraged in that truth that God desires to do that for you as well. And he will do that for you. Hey, listen, in Exodus chapter 5 last week, Moses had made his way uh, into Egypt. Remember that? And remember, this was the first time that he had actually confronted Pharaoh with God's message. And you know, Moses, having been led by God, him and Aaron, into the courts of Pharaoh with the message that God had given him, I'm sure he goes into that encounter thinking that the outcome is going to be just divine. Right? Have you ever been in that place where God has called you to do something? You know God's called you to do it, and you're like, man, there's no way this ain't going to work. God's called me to do it. And you engage in that activity, you follow through, and you just fall flat on your face. Have you ever done that? And you leave that, and you start to wonder, you start to question, well, maybe God didn't tell me. You know, that, that's the kind of thing we typically wrestle with because we go into those things thinking that if God wants us to do a given thing, that it's going to go just perfect and there's not going to be any opposition. All the doors are going to open. The windows will raise up. All that fresh air of God's goodness is just going to pour through in that experience and everything is just going to be hunky-dory, right? Have you ever felt like that? You know what I'm talking about? And then when the reality that there is a, a resistance to the purpose of God in our lives, and we must remain faithful and push through the resistance. How many of you have had resistance in your life? Every one of us has had, has had some level of resistance in our life. Some have had much more than others. Some are experiencing it now. Some have come through a season of resistance. Some who say, well, I'm not sure if I have or not. Let me say to you, resistance is around the corner awaiting your arrival. Believe me. And so Moses goes in. He delivers the message of God to Pharaoh. And the message of God to Pharaoh is, let my children go, that being the Israelites. Pharaoh's response after pondering and considering what Moses uh, had said or requested was a no Right? And not only is it an absolute no, he, he takes shots at their character, doesn't he? Basically says they're lazy people. It's not really that they're wanting to get out to worship God. They're just wanting to get out of work. It's what he says, basically. And then what he ends up doing is 
is uh, to try to stymie the message of God, he actually makes things more difficult on the Israelites. Remember, their task was making bricks. And there was a quota, a, a daily quota, a weekly quota, a monthly quota, whatever the quota may have been. There was a quota that they had to meet under their taskmasters and whatnot. Uh, there, there was a given workload they had to achieve. And to achieve the, the workload that they were required to achieve, they were provided the essential elements to create those bricks. One of those elements was a bonding, binding element, which was straw, which held the bricks together. The, basically, is what the constitution of the brick was, was basically the straw. And Pharaoh decides to make it more difficult on them, we were, we were going to withhold the straw. And they would have to find their own straw, their own means, their own binding elements. And so then it kind of kicks back. On Moses and Aaron, right? The, the slave, uh, the, 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 the servants of Pharaoh, those uh, uh, overseers go to him and say, Hey, hey this, this thing ain't jiving. We're not able to get this done. You guys are withholding the straw. We're not going to be able to meet the quota. It's impossible. And Pharaoh says, basically, it's because of Aaron and Moses this has happened. Right? And then the people come back and they end up chastising Aaron and Moses. And they basically blame them, don't they? Now what we're about to get into is the blame game. Because this thing moves pretty quick. Blame has a, a way of navigating its way in our life, through our lives, and around our life. And it has a way of kind of circumventing everything. You know what I'm talking about? And then ultimately coming back around. Uh, blame is one of those things that we sow that we then reap uh, uh, in, in an abundance. They blame Moses and they blame Aaron. So that's what we're going to pick up is after they blame Moses and Aaron for this additional hardship, Moses and Aaron, we read this last week, go back to God and Moses has a conversation with God. And this is what he says, and this is in uh, the end of chapter 5, verse 22. It says this, Moses returned to the Lord and said, now watch this, why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Blame one, right? We see that's pretty clear. Is this why you sent me? Really blame two. Why did you send me, really? For this mess? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people. Blame three. And you have not rescued your people at all. Right? I don't know how many of you know who Wayne Dyer is. Anybody here know who Wayne Dyer is? Well, don't... Well, you can look him up if you want to look him up. I'm not a big fan of Wayne Dyer. He's kind of a secular, uh, or he was, uh, he passed away in 2015. He's kind of a, a secular self-help guy. But you know what? Even a blind squirrel finds a nut from time to time, right? A broken clock is right twice a day. Well, Wayne Dyer made a comment in regards to blaming that if I agree with nothing else that he ever said, I agree with this. And this is what he said. All blame is a waste of time. No matter how much fault you find with another, and regardless of how much you blame him or her, it will not change you. 
You may succeed in making another feel guilty of something by blaming him or her, but you won't succeed in changing whatever it is about you that is making you unhappy or miserable. As a matter of fact, I will go so far as to say this. Blaming others is typically a means to insulate ourselves from self-reflection and a call to true repentance and change. As long as we can cast the fault out there, it allows us never to look in the mirror and to examine ourselves and to see where we are lacking as our own individual, right? If I'm in a given situation and it's Joe Bob's fault, then I never really have to assess why I'm here, right? And a lot of times because of that, and we're continuing to cast the blame out there, it keeps us confined in this place of, of almost being a victim, right? Let me say this to you. Let me just ask a, a general question. Speaking of blame, how many people here at any point in your life have been blamed for saying something or doing something to someone that you did not do? Raise your hand. Been blamed. Okay. All right. Now the tough question. Anybody here? done the blaming of another person for something they didn't do or didn't say and yet you blamed them? I'm going to tell you what, this may be the most honest church I've ever been in. The vast majority of people will raise their hands quickly to say I have been blamed, but very few people will raise their hands saying I have been the blamer. The reality is we both experience both sides of that, haven't we? I will tell you, I have blamed. And what typically happens is because we don't like to be the blamer, right? We'll typically say, well, we didn't really blame them. You didn't understand what it was what I was saying about them. I didn't really say it like that. That wasn't my intention. You didn't understand my motive. Instead of just coming out and saying, yeah, I was wrong. What I said was wrong. What I said they did, they did not do. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes it's, it's much easier for us just to kind of dismiss the blame. You know what I'm talking about? And just kind of, kind of navigate through that. The problem in the blame game is that it's inherent in us to try to remove ourselves from accountability in general. And listen, this begins early in life. Listen, I go down to my mother-in-law's daycare, Tim, matters and I'm telling you these one I mean the moment a kid can start to babble they don't even have to speak the moment Reuben they can start to point you'll go in and there'll be a kid who can't even talk and there'll be a mess in this play area and you'll go up to him and you'll say little Jimmy or may I say this better little Joshua why is Abigail's stuff on your table when she's crying over there? Before he can even talk, he's like this. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, kids will, I mean, it's just inherent to do this. And you have 10 kids down there. All 10 kids will be saying of the 11th kid, no, this is exactly how the, it happened. And then the 11th kid will be like, no. And if there's no one to blame, they'll make something up. You know what I'm talking about? 
We're not so different. The problem is, is when this thing gets so deep in our fabric and our fiber that we then begin to blame God for things in our lives that we don't understand. You know what I'm talking about? You know, the whole insurance uh, assessment of certain conditions. It's an act of God kind of thing. You know what I'm talking about? We sometimes look at things that we do not really understand and we have a tendency to point out the failures of God. We have the audacity to point out where God has failed us. Listen, I can't help but smile about that. The concept, the idea, or the notion that we, we as fallible people We'll look into the, the corridors of heaven, point our finger into heaven, and say, you missed it, you failed, you messed up. Because of the decisions of other people. Right? Now what we like to do, what we tend to do, is that when people's responses and decisions injure our lives, or cause havoc or difficulty in our lives, we begin to pray that God would interject Himself into their life choices, alter their life cho choices, change their choices, so it won't in, uh, impact us so greatly. Right? And we look at God and say, why didn't you intervene and stop them? But the flip side of that, we never want God intervening in our lives and altering the choices that we're making that might be doing the same thing to others. We want the freedom to make our choices, but we'll blame God for allowing other people the freedom to make their choices when those choices wound us. Right? And so we're looking at God, the whys, and why not, and why didn't you do this, and why didn't you do that? And at the same time, we've put up these off-limit signs in our lives saying, God, no, 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 don't you step in here. Don't come into the control room of my life and begin to mess with the knobs and the switches and the levers. Don't begin to, don't, don't begin to make changes in my life, right? We do this. And so that's what's taking place right here in this moment. Moses comes out of a situation with a misconception of how this thing was going to go down. God had already told him there was going to be resistance, but in his mind, he had abandoned the truth of what God had already revealed to him, embraced the notion that he had himself, and when his notion didn't come to fruition, he then blamed God. Now, had I been God, and he came back making these same statements, I would have said to him, what did I tell you was going to happen? Right? What did I tell you was going to happen? Didn't I tell you? You didn't have money in your checking account? Why did you write a check? God, why did I have an overdraft? You were broke, and you wrote a check. And it's the same thing that's taking place right here. Let's look, let's look at this. Let's look at this really quick here. He says, you brought, you sent, and you have not, is what he says to God. You have not. Now, listen, I want you to get this. What God was doing here, Ricky, is wanting to deliver the children of Israel, right? Well, that's his goal, is the deliverance of Israel out of bondage in Egypt into the promised land to fulfill his commitment 
to his people to honor the covenant, right? That's, that's the main goal. Let me say this. Deliverance comes often at a painful, painful cost, right? I don't know how many of you have ever been delivered of anything substantial in your life, but deliverance is not this uh, abracadabra, hocus-pocus stuff that God does, and all of a sudden, he's boom, and you're just completely delivered, no issues whatsoever in your life. That doesn't happen. And the people who subscribe to those types of notions are the types of people that become completely disoriented spiritually. The reality is when God initiates deliverance in our life, it is oftentimes met with resistance and oftentimes very, very painful. I say this to illustrate my point. When I was dealing as a young man with the anger and the, the issues with my father, the way that he had treated us, the things that we had been exposed to, all of those types of things, when God began to deliver me from those things, what he was saying for me to do was terrifying. When he was saying, Trent, open up your heart, go back into that memory bank of yours, recollect some of the experiences that you've had, regardless of how painful they were, and you need to begin to start forgiving your dad. In those moments... When you begin to go deep into that memory brain and open yourself up, you begin to ask yourself, is it worth this to be delivered? I don't know if I want to dig into all that ugly stuff. I don't know if I want to remember all that stuff, Reuben. I don't want to know if I want to relive all that stuff just to be set free. Maybe I can just push it down a little further and a little further and a little further to where I won't even need or acknowledge my need for deliverance. I can just pretend I'm already free. And hence is the problem. We exist within a church, and I'm not talking about this church uh, specifically, but church in general, where we pretend to be free. Because we don't want to pay the price of deliverance. I don't want to go there. Sometimes your deliverance is forgiveness. And some of you don't want to forgive. Some of you don't want to forgive. Sometimes deliverance is about making restitution. But I don't want to make things right. They wounded me too much. If I make it right, they may still not make it right. And so your restitution is contingent on someone else's restitution. And so you labor with their lack of obedience in your own imprisonment, own slavery, because the price is too high to pay for restitution. So freedom isn't yours. You still need to be delivered. The broken marriage, the wounded relationship, the husband who's been unfaithful, the wife who's been unfaithful, You've pressed on, you've pushed through. You've put it in your past, but you never really, really resolved it. 10, 15 years later in that marriage, it's built on straw legs, and you wonder why the marriage is teetering to and fro with every assault of wind in your life. Why is the marriage so fragile? It's because the real issues, the real deliverance, the, the, the real freedom of the marriage was never really secured. 
It was just buried. And so God had told Moses, when you go in, this is what he says to him. Pharaoh's going to say no. He's going to say this. And when you go in to those places in your own life, looking for deliverance, you think the enemy is just going to give up? You think the adversary is going to look at you and just say, okay, man, be free. Okay, walk in freedom. Go on out. No, that's not what he's going to do. You know what he's going to do? He's going to sink those claws in. He don't want you free. He don't want you liberated. He doesn't care if you pretend to be free. That's okay. Because a person pretending to be free can't really ever free anyone else either or help in the liberation of another if they're only pretending to be free. But I'll tell you what he doesn't want. He don't want you free for real. And as much as God wanted to free them from Egypt, God wants to free you and me. And so Moses comes and Moses says all these things. Why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people. And you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, chapter 1, verse 6, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. You know what he didn't say? Now you're going to see what happens to Pharaoh. That's all he said. He said, now you're going to see what I will do to Pharaoh. He says, because of my mighty right hand, or my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God is the causative factor. You understand what I'm saying? He is the cause. He is the force and the energy for true deliverance and liberation. Not just in a nation, but in the heart of an individual. God Inasmuch as he declared to Moses over the nation of Israel, desires to declare to you today, I want to be the causative factor in your life. I want to be the energy, the force, the power, the strength. I want to do the work. You think it's you doing the work. And it's never really you doing the work. It's just your willingness to allow him to do the work. And this is what he says. He says, not only, not only, got, a, got a, a little theme music going. Not only is he going to allow them out, that's not even what the scripture says. The scripture says, initially, the request was what? To let them go. God says, I'm going to raise my hand out. He's not going to let you go. He's going to drive you out. It's, not, it's no longer going to be an omission where he just concedes to allow you to leave. I'm going to move against him in such a manner that he's going to drive you to freedom. Do you see the difference in that? 
That's what the power of God does. It doesn't just break the chains, man. It breaks the chains and then ushers you out. And that's what he's saying right here. My righty hand, my, he, says, he says, because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Then he says this, but also, or God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. You know what he was saying right there? You know what, you know what, you know what the name? You know what name? You know what he had, had revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the patriarch? The God of the promise. That's who he was. The God of the promise. You know who he was revealing to Moses and to Aaron? You know who he was revealing himself to be? To Moses, to Aaron, and to the nation of Israel? The keeper of the promise. Because the promise was a nation. The promise was the covenant. The promise was the promised land. And in this moment, and in this situation, this thing was coming to pass. And this is what he says. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving. I, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I love this. I love this. God makes seven declarations. I will declarations in response to Moses' uh, 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 distraught condition. I want you to listen to what God says he's about to do. All right? Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you. There was a time in my life that I needed redeeming. So desperately needed redeeming. And I need the continual process in my life of being redeemed. Daily redeemed. He said, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. As a possession. And he says this. I am the Lord. You know what that says right there? It's like he's writing this check, all these I wills, and then he just signs it at the end. I am the Lord. It's as good as done. And the reason I say that to you is this. In the English, we do a really poor job of translating the tenses of these statements or these verbs. All seven of these verbs, bring, free, redeem, take, be, bring, and give, we read them in, in a future tense, but in the Hebrew, it's in a perfect tense, which is almost like a past tense. Basically, what God is saying in regards to all these things he has done, in the Hebrew, it would basically be this. Every bit of this 
is as good as done. In the perfect tense, it's almost like it's already been accomplished. The thing that God is declaring, this thing has already ran its course in the heart of God. It's finished. Some of you are thinking, oh, when's God going to start? What you don't know, man, he's already got this thing done. He's got this thing done, and you have no idea. You have no idea what he has finished in your life. You have no idea what is working, the unknown, unseen thing that God is doing in your life. You are clueless. I am clueless about the extent of God's hand in my life to work the purpose of God in my life, to fulfill his plan for me and his plan for you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, verse 2 says this, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know how the New Living Translation translates this? And Carrie didn't have any idea I was going to use this morning. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith, who completes it, who brings it to, to fruition. Wholeness is what it means. So when he says to him, the seven I wills, and he was saying this thing is as complete as it can be complete, it's just like the faith that he has started in you. The author will finish this thing. Huh. And Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Man, you remember last week when I told you about the strategy of the enemy? You remember that? You remember in Exodus chapter 5, I said this. We'll do a little bit of upkeep here. This is what Pharaoh said to them. Make the work harder for the people so they can keep working and pay no attention to the lies. Remember when I told you the strategy of the enemy was to oppress us, to put us into conflict, to, to put the pressure on us so that we would what, become dislodged from the truth of God? And what does the scripture right there in chapter 6 say? Moses reported this to the Israelites. Man, Moses brought this good news, this response to God, to the Israelites. And what does the scripture say? But they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. The strategy worked, didn't it? It appears it does. As long as the enemy's strategies work against you, the enemy will continue to use those strategies. Funny, isn't it? This is what the scripture says, though. It says, their discouragement and their harsh labor was the cause for their disbelief. The word discouragement is a word katsur. The word katsur in the Hebrew is used one time in all of the Old Testament. One time, and it's used right here. Do you know what that word means? I'm going to give you a look into their condition. The scripture says, because of their discouragement 
and harsh labor. But the word katzer means, when it talks about discouragement, it means shortness of breath or shortness of spirit. I can't help but think that it becomes so difficult that these children of Israel were so under a load of stress and anxiety and fear that they were smothering. Now listen, I cannot, I cannot stand up here and honestly say to you, I understand what an anxiety attack is like. You know why? I've never had one. It doesn't mean that I can't empathize or sympathize. It doesn't mean my heart doesn't go out to people who wrestle with anxiety. Because it does. It does, I promise you. But I've had people who have told me they wrestle with anxiety. And I've asked them, I said, what's it like to wrestle with anxiety? And you know what they would tell me? I can't breathe. You know what they're really telling me? I've got a whole lot of concert going on. Shortness of breath. The workload, whatever it is that I'm under, the stress, the pressure, it, gets me short of, it has me short of spirit, short of breath. And this is the condition that they were in. And God doesn't hold it against them. God doesn't look at them and say to them, because of cancer and shortness of breath, because of your discouragement, then just forget it and stay in that mess. That isn't what he says. You know what he says? He says again to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of the country. He's saying, in that moment, my plans have not been derailed because of your concert. You think your discouragement, your anxiety, your stress, your emotional issues, your depression, you think that's going to thwart the purpose and the heart of God for your life? Think again, Jack. You're wrong. God's heart, God's love for his children is so vast, even in our failings, it doesn't stop God from moving on our behalf to what? To produce, to produce deliverance in our life. And sometimes the deliverance in our life is from the very cancer we experience. Oh, that we might know the breath of heaven when we find ourselves short of breath. God still moves. And he moves whether we are discouraged or not, whether we believe or not. The simple reality is we just forfeit the opportunity to come alongside God and rest in his assurance when we don't trust him. That's what we're really doing. We're just forfeiting the opportunity to rest. Forfeiting the opportunity to take a breath. I don't know if you've ever been in that moment where you felt like you couldn't breathe. I remember a couple years ago in November, you guys remember this, I've talked about it numerous times, you know, to a level of fatigue, I'm sure, 
has exhausted you. When I was wrestling with uh, the whole COVID experience, me and Aaron went through a very similar experience. And uh, my lungs were, uh, you know, after them doing MRIs and x-rays and all this stuff, they come back to me and said, your lungs are full of black COVID pneumonia. I said, just covered. And man, I remember having a little, the little gauge on my thumb, you know, and it's the oxygen meter. And they said it should be this when in fact it was that. My wife would tell you, man, I couldn't walk here. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe. And then I remember when I went to the hospital, man, they put that oxygen on me. Kelly, they put it on there, that pure oxygen. I remember they strapped it on my face. Jay, I remember going. <sighs> you know what some of us need to do this morning? In the midst of our concert, we have forfeited God's assurance because we don't trust Him to come alongside of us. Sound like Darth Vader, don't I? That's what he's wanting to do for us. But we allow the concert to be bigger than God. God is sitting out there with the breath of heaven. And there's never a time you need to be short of breath. Because of fear and anxiety and stress and issues in our life. We sit over here spiritually and we'll go like this. And tears, heartache, stress, broken relationships. That's how our spirit sounds. And yet God's moving. He's moving to deliver us all the same. But the question is, and the question I ask myself often, Gabe, is how many times has God wanted to provide for me and I've allowed the concert to overwhelm my life, my situations to overwhelm my life? I think, how many times have I had sleepless nights, restless nights? How many times have I gotten up to go to work in the morning, red-eyed, because I wrestled throughout the night? Because I didn't trust him. What have I forfeited in my life? Have you ever asked yourself that? What have I forfeited when I could have been breathing, breathing in deep, and all I was doing was But Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites would not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? You want to hear Moses' spirit? Did you get that? Now God speaks to the heart of Moses and Aaron. This is what he says to them. This is a long... Portion of scripture. I'm going to read a portion of it. 
how the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites in favor of the king of Egypt. And he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And these were the heads of their families. And he begins to name all the heads of the families. And he begins to name those who had preceded Moses and Aaron. And he begins to name the sons and the descendants of Reuben and Simeon and Levi. Then he gets down in verse 18 and he brings up a man by the uh, name of Amram. The sons of Kohath were Amram. You remember who Amram was? He was the father of Moses, remember? And then you get down in chapter or verse 20 and it says, Amram married his, father, his father's sister Jochebed who bore him Aaron and Moses. Remember when I told you that Moses' mother was the aunt of his father? Remember when I told you all that? I had people look at me like I was crazy. Scripture says that's what was taking place there. And then you get down to the very end of the scripture, and this is what it says. It was this Aaron and Moses. After he goes through, he goes through those who preceded Moses, the birth of Moses, and then he goes into the descendants of Levi. Aaron and Moses, into the descendants of Aaron. And he tells of Aaron's sons who would later become caretakers for the temple, erectors of the temple, overseers of the temple. And this is how he finishes up this response to Moses. And we're, we're done. It was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. This same Moses and this same Aaron. What was that response about? How do we go from this conversation about getting the children out of Israel to Moses' background, to Moses' condition, and to Moses and Aaron's future. What type of a response from God was that? That makes no sense. But it makes all sense. Because Moses' question was, why would Pharaoh speak to listen to me? since I speak with faltering lips. You know what he was saying to God once again? Who am I to do this? And God's response to him was the whole family tree thing. Right? And you know what he's saying to Moses? Get this. I want everybody in here to get this. He was saying this to them. I know where you come from. I know your baggage. I know your history. I know all the ugly. And I still called you. He says, I know where you're at. And I'm still calling you. And I know where I'm taking you because I've called you. And at this moment, you know what the response of Moses should be. You know what the response of you and I should be when we understand that God knew us when we were undesirable. He knew us when we were somewhere in between. And he knows us and he has a plan for us. You know what our response to God should be? It should be this. 
Some of you this morning need to know that God knew you and he still called you. God sees you and the calling's still in effect and God has a plan for you because of that calling. Now is no time to give up. Now is no time for short breaths. Now is no time for... Now it's time to open up your lungs, man, and breathe in the goodness and the mercy of God. Let them take the concert. Let them take whatever it is and just trust him. Just trust him in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me this morning? I'm just going to ask Carrie to come just for a moment. Just for a moment. And some of you guys, man, you're going to be going home this morning. You're going to be like, I don't know what Trent was talking about. I walked in and he was doing this breathing exercise. A Darth Vader in person. I don't know what he was doing. But those of you who do know what I was doing, the decision is yours. Whether you'll live with shortness of spirit, shortness of breath, or whether you'll breathe in the breath of heaven. Open your lungs up and take them all in. Trust him. I know life's tough. You don't have to sell me that. I'm already buying. I know it's tough. Losing a spouse, losing a child, losing jobs, losing opportunities. Coming out of situations that are just have ravaged you emotionally, has stolen from you, has diminished your person. I know this stuff's real, man. I lived enough of that myself. But also, God's real. Ain't he, Jess? God's real. I don't know what your uh, bondage looks like. I don't know what your prison cell looks like. I don't know that stuff. I don't know the inner workings of all that in your life. God does, just like he knew Moses and Aaron. God does. He's known it all along. And he's still reaching out there for you. You know what he's saying. Look, this is what he's saying. Come on. Come on. Come and rest. I'm going to take you through this. I'm going to take you through this. It might be a little painful. It could be a little difficult, a little heartache. Might have to peel off some, some, some scabs. May have to reopen some wounds. May have to go into some dark corridors, dark corners, dark closets. Might have to go into some dark places. But I'm with you. And if we go in there, we're going in with a purpose. And the purpose is to bring you out different than we took you in. To bring you out free, liberated. With your heads bowed this morning, that's what God is saying to you this morning. He said, come on. Time to come on out. Come on out. Come on out. 
the question you and I have to answer this morning is are we willing to trust Him to bring us out? And if you're in that place this morning and you're willing to trust Him, I would ask you to step out from the, a chair that you find yourself sitting in, standing by, or whatever else. Come to a place, one of these places around this altar to pray and to pour your heart out to God. Acknowledge the concert. Acknowledge the short, Acknowledge the struggle. Acknowledge the difficulty. And just cry out to God and say, Jesus, I need your strength. I need your strength. I need your power. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says this, for it, is, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It's God's power that's going to set you free. It's his influence. This is your moment in Jesus' name. It's your choice. Amen. Thank you.